If you're investing in companies that are crappy, that don't produce returns, if your money is not put to productive use, inflation is going to eat your wealth away. And that's how it should be. Okay. Mm -hmm. It should be that inflation, you have to beat inflation as an investor. You have to. There's no way around it. Welcome to the Rich Summers Report, where we talk real estate, business, and wealth building, all while keeping it real. No fluff, no BS. I hope that you enjoy the show. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of The Report. Today, we are back in the studio here in downtown San Diego, and we got a little sunshine today after a very wet and dark winter for San Diego standards. But I got a very special guest today. He is a tech investor, and he is going all in recently on the AI space. He is the CEO of Weight Room. I got my man, Vinny Lingham. Vinny, welcome to the show. Hey, Rich. Good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you coming by, man. I know our, our guy, Jeff, uh, yeah. introduced us. Jeff uh, is local here. Him and his brother throw out some really badass art pieces here in San Diego. They do. And all over the world, really. But they got a studio here in San Diego. They're recently out on our yacht meetup. But great guys. We actually got a piece. They brought a piece here uh, that I got hung up in the office of Little Italy. Very, very mm -hmm. nice. But anyways, I'm glad they connected us and I'm glad you're on the show, man. But uh, before we jump into it, why don't you give us a, a quick little background of what you do in the uh, the entrepreneurial space? Sure. So, uh, well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I'm, in a, I'm a serial entrepreneur, so which means I've started lots of companies. I'm South African born from an accent. I moved here about 15 years ago. We're in South Africa. So I was born in a small town called East London, but then I studied at the University of Cape Town, moved to Johannesburg, started a company there uh, in my bedroom, actually. In your bedroom? Um, yeah, in 2003. Wow. And it quickly became one of the leading technology companies in South Africa. We won awards and a whole bunch of stuff. And, you know, we're growing really, really fast. Got to 2008 and the political situation changed in the country and I decided I didn't want to be there anymore. So I left and moved to San Francisco to run a software as a service platform uh, back in those days, very early on. But the, the company I started actually got sold to Carlyle Group, mm. you know, six months ago, one of the biggest private equity firms in the world. And, you know, I think at the time of sales, like 800 employees, a couple hundred million dollars a transaction. It's, it was pretty great, right? So got a good exit. I didn't own any shares at that point because I sold out about 2011 or 12. But I was very happy for the team. The people I hired, they were all execs. It was fantastic. So and that was a that was a four-year grind building a company. We were, you know, no cash. <laughs> we had cash flow problems. We had profitability issues at some point. We were trying to build this company from scratch. And, it, and, and like, I grinded from nothing. So, like, I had, you know, I had no money. I had sold my little small condo I had to start this business. And, yeah, I went through the whole entrepreneurial journey from, like, literally from, you know, rags to riches. And... It's been an interesting uh, journey for me. And then, you know, after I got to Silicon Valley, I kind of got into the vibe. It took a while because I, I got there in 2008 and the entire market collapsed mm. in the financial crisis. So it was kind of a dismal <laughs> place. And I was like, maybe I should go back home. <laughs> this, is, this is not cool. But, you know, I sold it on and I started, uh, that, you know, the, the, company, the SaaS company I started is still around today, but the, I started another company in 2012 called Gift and it was a mobile gift card platform. And we quickly became one of the biggest platforms for gifting and digital gifting out there. Um, we added Bitcoin in 2013 to our platform and we became the biggest Bitcoin site and app out there. What is digital gifting? So it's the ability to buy a gift card for Amazon, Starbucks, Walmart, whatever, through a mobile app on the phone. And mm. you can pay with a credit card. You can pay with uh, Bitcoin as well. And that worked fantastically well. We, you know, we built the company from from zero to, we raised, you know, $500 in capital from guys like Ashton Kutcher and uh, a whole bunch of Silicon Valley venture capital guys, Google Ventures, et cetera. And we sold it to First Data Corporation 
about two and a half years later mm. and you know over 50 million dollar exit so wow. it was a great return for all the investors and you know and then at that point i was kind of knee deep in crypto i've been buying bitcoin since like 40 bucks and 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 really getting into what the crypto ecosystem was about so i started angel investing in a whole bunch of crypto companies and so you know spent you know three four years doing that uh then started another company a blockchain based identity company called civic and that's around you know and then 2017 i joined a nascent hedge fund that was being started by two guys in Austin. I became the Silicon Valley, you know, partner. And, you know, we, we raised a bunch of money from David Sachs and Bill Lee from Craft Ventures and did the, did the deal with Solana, early stage seed round, which is a, one of the big blockchains. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, and we rode, you know, I guess we rode the wave up from there and it, you know, Multicoin became, oh, probably still is one of the largest, uh, crypto hedge funds in the world right now. And, you know, it, it's been a crazy run, but in 2020, Mm -hmm. I kind of got tired of crypto. We've been in for like seven, eight years. And I kind of sort of pairing back in crypto and focusing on building Waitroom, which is my uh, AI-based video conferencing platform. And uh, that's what my focus is right now. But I'm still an investor in crypto and, and, and probably, probably a couple of hundred startups by now, mainly Bay Area, but all over California and around the world. And I also happen to be a shark on Shark Tank South Africa. Really? Yeah. No way, that's so pretty I'm, cool. I, yeah, I'm, 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 the, I'm the Cuban guy, you know, the, okay. the, the guy in the corner. Yeah. Uh, whippersnapper tech guy. <laughs> I love that. And uh, yeah, so we, we filmed that a couple of times. Um, we're going to be restarting it soon, hopefully. Mm -hmm. COVID kind of stopped it for a while. You have such an extensive background in startups. Um, for a listener out there that wants to start their own company, what do you think is the number one key to success? You know, I think it's grit, perseverance, and humility. Humility. Think, yeah. I think it's a it's, it's an underspoken attribute that that people people always go on about. Hey, you need courage and grit and determination. I think you also need a bit of humility, mm. and the humility is really about appreciating that you don't have all the answers, and, and in fact, no one does, right? So you can ask the best advisor in the world; they'll give you an, a viewpoint, an opinion. They may or may not be right, and so humility means that when you fail, you don't take it personally, but you learn from it. Because when you fail and you take it personally, it puts you in a dark place. But humility says you know what, the expectation here is that, that I'm going to fail, probably, but I'm going to try my best to succeed. And if I fail, it's not because I didn't try my best. It's because the conditions for success were not there. That's so good. And as an entrepreneur, you will fail Absolutely. over and over and over. Everyone fails. And it's how you rebound from it. But yeah. those failures uh, make you better. Absolutely. And that's how, you, that's how you improve. And it's, you know, it's part of the journey. Yeah. I've learned to really grasp and enjoy the whole process of failing over and over and making mistakes. Um, because it's an opportunity to get better and um, growth is is how we improve, mm -hmm. you know? And so with the crypto, I know you're you kind of phased out of it. Uh, you mentioned Solano in there. Yeah. I used to dabble with some crypto. Uh, Solano was one of the ones that I uh, I had. I don't dabble too much anymore, but uh, what is going on with the crypto space today? So the crypto space right now is under siege by the regulators, the administration and whatnot. I was a early advisor in invest in Solana. I believe in the guys, you know, Raj and Toli, they're friends of mine, been there since the hard times in 2018, all the way to now. They've had a huge successful run up. Things went down with obviously the mood, the market sentiment, but the technology is not, hasn't changed. It's still the fastest blockchain. It still runs more transactions than every other blockchain combined. And just market, market sentiment is just low because the regulators are trying to figure this out for themselves. And you know, the SEC taking Coinbase to court over listing securities, I think that's a that's going to be a landmark case for crypto. Because if Coinbase wins, it changes 
the way the ACC is positioned. Mm -hmm. If the ACC wins, it changes the way the industry has to move forward. And so we're in this weird sort of place of purgatory right now where we just don't know where things are going to go. That's it. Bitcoin's up 20% nearly this past week. And, you know, Bitcoin is not a, a security. The ACC have said that. It's also the world's only really, truly global decentralized digital asset. And, you know, you can argue Ethereum on some levels, but Bitcoin's, Bitcoin's the, you know, the gorilla in the room. And so people around the world, if they're worried about their governments, their budgets, their whatever, it's a payments network, it's a store of value, it's a transaction network, it's got tons of utility and use cases, and it's probably going to go up mm -hmm. over the next three, four, five years. If you just look at the mounting debt we have in the US, 31 trillion, they've just removed the debt ceiling, which by my calculations puts us at 38 trillion by the time the new president's in, or, or Biden gets reelected, whichever, whichever it is. And we're paying interest at this point of like 5%. The, the numbers don't add up. Something's going to break and it's going to break soon. I don't think we have more than six months before we have another crisis of some sort. We had the banking crisis two months ago. So I'm cautiously optimistic that we get out of this, but I don't think we get out of this scot-free. There'll be a price to be paid and the day of reckoning is coming for our you know, excessive spending and debt. Yeah. It will be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, the Fed last Wednesday uh, announced that they were not going to raise rates. They're going to put a pause to the raises for uh, the first time in over a year. Which made no sense. Why, why would you say that? It made no sense because in the same breath, they're saying there are two more hikes coming. So why not do them now? Why are you pausing? Mm -hmm. And so it confused the markets massively. It's true. And uh, the analysts that are out there are all saying that they that this was a consensus decision. In other words, the, the committee was split and divided on what the right thing was to do. And they just went with like, we're not going to do anything, which is probably the wrong decision. I think personally, they should have hiked rates another 25 and said, okay, 25 going up and now we're done and not communicate any more future raises. But now the market's worried about another two hikes. Hey guys, real quick, I hope that you're finding value in this show. If you could do me a huge favor and drop a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you're listening on, it would mean the world to me. Also, if you know of anyone that would potentially benefit from this podcast, feel free to share it with them so we can help more people build wealth through real estate investing. Now back to the show. Yeah, it will be interesting to see what they do with this. I'm curious, you know, because obviously inflation's coming down. It's Inflation's really going to tell the story here. Um, so we'll, we'll see where that goes. But I think there's still a lot, these rate hikes that all occurred over the last 15 months, I think there's still a lot of trickling down that needs to happen and it needs to occur. Mm -hmm. I read something that said that in like the history of the Federal Reserve raising rates, when they put a pause to it, they've actually never gone back and continued raising them before. So I don't know what- I think this time is different. I think uh, inflation is sticky. You're looking at the result, the inflation numbers out of the UK today, they actually went the other way uh, versus expected. I think the Fed is confused. Because they also com they also communicated an interesting point. They communicated today that inflation uh, last week, sorry, they communicated last week that inflation is sticky and it's probably still you know susceptible to be going up. If that's the case, why are you not raising rates? So again, they, and then you know the results from Britain today was just kind of scary, right? <laughs> so I think inflation is going to be relatively sticky. I think it's going to be sticky around the four percent level. I think it's going to take a lot to get it below four percent. So they're sitting with this 2% target. Inflation's not going down to 2% anytime soon. If it goes that low, it's going to go much lower because then we're in deflation. But I think 4% is kind of a floor right now. Yeah. But you can't deny that a lot of liquidity and capital is being sucked out of the markets and they're putting, you know, when you can go get a, uh, let's say a bond or you can go place your money into 
you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of funds out there where you can get four, four and a half percent, five percent, even risk free right now. Well, money markets, uh, money market, are, money markets, yeah, yeah. And so they're taking a lot of liquidity out of the marketplace, which I think that has a lot of trickling down to do yeah. over the next six to twelve months. So we'll kind of see where that that puts us. The money markets basically put a lot of pressure on the banks because the money's flowing out of the banking system into the money markets. Mm-hmm. And what happens then is you have a risk of more bank failures, like you've seen earlier this year. And so this is this is the only reason, only rationale I can see why the Fed would say, look, let's just pause rates because they cannot afford a banking crisis happening again. Because when you raise rates, the so just for the listeners here, I'll, I'll explain this very simply. What happened in 2021 was the Fed flooded the market with liquidity and the banks all of a sudden had excess amounts of dollars in their accounts and they have to earn a yield somehow. Okay, so what they did was they bought U.S. government bonds which the Fed communicated in their forward projections, you know, the future interest rates would be zero or near zero for a long period of time. So if you buy a bond at a hundred bucks and the yield is, you know, whatever, five, 5%, so you get five buck yield. And all of a sudden the rates go up, the price of that bond goes down. And so the mark to market value of that bond is down, but based upon the rules in the banking system, the banks that are insolvent or didn't have the full mark, those banks were underwater. Yeah. And, th- and that was the problem. And the higher the interest rates go, the more underwater they are. The banks basically use our money to buy treasuries, long-dated treasuries, and it's called um, you know borrow short, lend long, okay? And so basically what that means is you, you put money in a bank account today, $10,000. The bank takes that money and goes buys long-term bonds to give you an interest. But if you take the money out today, they have to sell that bond to try and make up the difference. Right. And so that's when you saw the bank runs happen. That's with the bank runs. So the moment the bank runs out of Silicon Valley Bank, that was it. Yeah. So depositors go go to the banks. They get word that, hey, maybe this bank's in trouble and they all want to take out their money. And the only way to make these depositors whole is to sell those bonds yes. that are priced at a discount now. And so now they're taking a bath to sell them. Yep. And then more people get wind of it and more depositors come back to withdraw their money. And that's when these runs happen. This is when the FDIC has to stop in exactly. and, and take over. And then the Fed comes in and says, okay, we'll take on some of these bonds into our balance sheet and we'll take the duration risk. So the duration risk on the bond is if you bought a 10-year bond, yes, it's good in 10 years' time, but it's not if you take, you know, discounted time value of money, it's not worth it today. Right. And so that's what the whole Fed, you know, they took on a couple hundred billion dollars on their balance sheet a few months ago to, to sort of backstop that. The Fed cannot bail out the entire financial system. And if rates keep going up and up, a collapse is going to happen. Do you think more bank collapses will happen uh, here in the next three to six months? Absolutely. Yeah. Think about it this way. You've also got, you've got risk on mortgages and a bank's going to sell those off. But th- th- there's uh, the com- commercial real estate crisis that's happening. So commercial real estate is rolling over. So a lot of, I mean, Westfield, San Francisco, one of the biggest malls in California, mm-hmm. I'd say. The owners gave up the lease last week. They just gave it up because they can't afford to pay the costs on the, on the debt. You got a problem with a lot of these malls, though. I mean, you're seeing a lot of them shut down all over the country. Um, There's one here in downtown San Diego, Horton Plaza, that's completely been redeveloped. But I remember the last two years of that being open. You walk over there and it was like a zombie apocalypse. There was was no one out there. Um, None of the stores were were open. I think there's still a place for some of these malls, like some of the nicer higher end ones that are maybe outdoor malls with higher end shopping with the Louis Vuitton, the Gucci's. Well, that's that's Westfield. That's Westfield? Westfield, yeah. And is that the same Westfield company that owns yep. all these malls? Mm-hmm. Well, so I think, I don't know the details, but my guess is they structure each mall as a separate company so they can, if one goes yeah. bad, they can jettison off and not destroy the whole the whole company. But we're staring down the barrel. It looks like, in, looks like the job market is super strong. 
But when something breaks and there's mass layoffs, these jobs aren't coming back quickly into the economy, no matter how much the Fed cuts interest rates. Because mm-hmm. AI, is, AI is really starting to take over jobs in a big way. Yeah. So what would you do here uh, if you were in control in terms of like, okay, we need to get inflation down, but we, we don't want more bank collapses. What would you do? You know, I think inflation at 4 or 5% is not the worst thing in the world. I agree. I think it's okay. I, I lived in South Africa where we had inflation of 11, 10, 9% mm-hmm. habitually, and the, and the economy keeps going on. It's not a big deal. The argument is that poor people have no money and their money gets eaten away by inflation. So let's hold that for a second. The other argument is that people who have got savings uh, and wealth, they get eradicated. Now, let's talk about the really poor people first. Yes, if you have a job, it matters because now your earning power goes down. But mm-hmm. what happens in South Africa is companies give you inflation-adjusted increases all the time. So you don't actually suffer as much. Maybe it's every six months, maybe it's every 12 months, but you get inflation-adjusted increases. People with no money aren't affected. They're homeless. They don't have anything anyway, so inflation doesn't affect them. Inflation impacts the wealthy a lot more than it does the poor, in my opinion. And the, the employed poor and unemployed poor. Because they, of all the, the assets and, and yes, investments, real estate have, assets, If you have unproductive assets, if you're investing in companies that are crappy, that don't produce returns, if your money is not put to productive use, inflation is going to eat your wealth away. And that's how it should be. Okay, mm-hmm. It should be that inflation... You have to beat inflation as an investor. You have to. There's no way around it. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you solve the problem of the poor? How do you solve the problem where we have this unequal society? Guess what? Universal basic income is something I think is overdue right now. If, I, if we give a poor person $1,000 or $10,000 a year, it changes their life dramatically. If it gives a wealthy person $10,000 a year, it doesn't make a difference. So... There's got to be a way for us to create a system where we can equally just give money to people, okay, and create this universal basic income. So everyone, like, call it, call it a citizen dividend, but then run higher levels of inflation to provide that, but not super high. So that's kind of my my, my thinking, and I've been playing mm. around with those ideas for a while. There is some sound economic theory behind this. It's just not politically acceptable. People think that, you know, giving people who, like, I think that, in a society like the United States, if you really, really care about the people and the middle class mm-hmm. and, and even the, the, you know, the poorer, lower class people, you've got, we've got to find a way to, to, to rebalance things. And the solution is not more taxes. Yeah. It's just, it's not, it's not tax, like rather inflate, rather have higher inflation and be okay with it, knowing that, because inflation, again, is a big tax on the wealthy. It is a big tax on the wealthy that they don't want to talk about. I agree. I agree with that. Um, I would rather have four, four and a half percent inflation than uh, crazy high interest rates and, and everything that's going on exactly. right now. Exactly. I don't think a little bit of inflation is necessarily a bad thing, yeah. but I and will way, people say can't, that, People can't afford homes right now. Mm-hmm. I have my mortgage statement back. And well, they can't afford homes because the rates are double what they were. So my mortgage expires ago. soon, like uh, next year. And they, they send me a statement saying it's literally double the payments next year. If I want to renew the mortgage, your fixed your fixed portion is is maturing, and now it's going to yeah, adjust. exactly exactly yeah. And like you know, fine, I can afford it. That's mm-hmm. not the issue. How many people out there cannot afford a doubling in their mortgage rates mm-hmm. in their payments? How many people cannot afford yeah. that? And that's happening right now. So I'm very concerned that we're thinking about this the wrong way. It, it, we're going to break this economy by jacking interest rates up too high, so no one can afford homes, no one can afford the the rollovers when when their current fixed mortgages expire, and how does that solve anything? Now you're going to have you know mortgage defaults cascading. The picture doesn't look good. I'd rather have a world where 
you know, we have slightly high inflation and actually interest rates below inflation. And we had that for a while with, with ZERP. So you have, you know, you could have interest rates at 2% and you can have inflation at 4% and you can actually make it work. Mm-hmm. That would be a hell of a thing for the uh, the real estate investing space if we went back to, um, you know, zero. You know, we, it's the, the, the going back to zero is not, not on the cards. There's, there's no political appetite for it at all. And, and, and I don't think zero is the right number either. I think zero was too low. So one to two was a good number? I think 2%, I think 2% interest rates, 2 3%, and a little bit of higher inflation. Even if you kept them in parity, even if you said, look, inflation's at 4%, interest rates are at 4%, we'll be okay. Mm-hmm. But trying to push it down from 4 to 2% by pushing interest rates from 525 5.5 to 7%, 8% is silly. It's the least bad option we have. Yeah. But, uh, again, I'm, I'm not a politician. Now, I agree with everything you said. However, I will say that there's, uh, within regards to inflation and the median salaries, so if you look at the the median salary in the U.S. over the last 30 years, it's only increased about like 27%. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the median home price over the last 30 years, it's increased like almost 300%. Mm-hmm. And if you look at inflation over that, that same time period, it's increased a lot more than the 20% that the salaries have. So I guess... What I don't agree with, and, and I think it should be the case, I think some employers do a good job of putting in those step increases to keep up with inflation. But if you look at the data out there in the U.S. over the last 30 years, it just hasn't happened. Well, it hasn't happened because we haven't had high inflation in the U.S. That's true. So they, they, they kind of ignore it. I mean, I, someone running companies, when people come to me, you know, and this happened like over the past decade, like, hey, inflation, you know, I need an increase. I'm like, well, why? Just mm-hmm. because I'm producing more, I'm like, no, your performance is okay. You know, it's not like the company's not in a position to give you a, a massive increase. And we, and we always used to do small adjustments, but there was mm-hmm. no justification from the employees for a much lo- a higher salary increase. Inflation in South Africa is, is like, hey, listen, if you don't give me that 10% increase, you pay me less than you were paying me last year. And the company goes, okay, f- fair enough. We'll give you 10%. So inflation is the best excuse for increases. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Um, but check this out. So I'm pulling this up right now. So median salary in 2002 in here in the U.S. was 42000 Median salary today is about 54000 College tuition in 2002 was 45000 College tuition today is 111000 144 increase versus a 27% increase. So here's the problem with all these stats in America is they do not apply across the country. You cannot say a median salary is whatever in right. you know, California. Like, it doesn't work. Right? So we need to start analyzing state-by-state state numbers. And because people choose to move to whatever state, they're going to get the best salary. So I, 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 when I listen to, like, aggregate stats for the country, I, mm-hmm. I yeah, pinch the salt because it's not accurate. There's no way anyone in California who lives in San Diego is going to survive on 40 grand a year. No. But if you're in Alabama, it's probably okay. You know, it's it's fine. Not fine, but like it's it's a livable salary, but it's not definitely not a livable year in San Diego. I mean, the rent, the rents here are just ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, one a one bedroom apartment could be twenty five hundred bucks here. That's exactly my point. So you cannot look at aggregate stats, but that gets pulled out all the time. Yeah, you can definitely frame a lot of those stats in in different ways, yeah. uh, for sure. Learning to become a successful real estate investor can take a lot of time and dedication, which some people just don't have. If you're one of these individuals, this doesn't mean you can't invest in real estate. My company, Summers Capital, is buying a bunch of boutique hotels right now, and you can invest with us in these deals without having to do any of the work. Our team sources the deals, we secure the lending, we take care of all the renovations, and we even handle all the day-to-day operations with our in-house management company, making it truly hands-off and passive for our investors. If you want to learn more to see if we can help you, go to Summers 
summerscapital.com slash invest to book a call with our team. Again, that's summerscapital.com slash invest. Now back to the show. So tell me a little bit about the AI stuff and, and what you guys are doing with Waitroom. Mm. So with Waitroom, we basically have a um, video conferencing platform which transcribes everything you're saying in real time and every 90 seconds creates snippets. So if someone walks in late to a meeting, they can go and read in summary form what just happened before they get there. It creates action items, tasks, to-dos, reminders. And it, it, it doesn't do it in a way where it's not, it's not a transcription of what happened. It's, it's summarized snippets of what was happening before you got there. And we're building the system to be very, very intelligent. So it will send you a reminder. You know, if you, if you and I have a conversation on the platform and you say, hey, Vinny, uh, let's go and grab a beer next Friday or a glass of wine. Uh, sure, let's do it. And then neither of us take notes or reminds it. It'll email you the day before. Say, hey, you said to Vinny, you'd contact him, just a reminder. At the end of the day, it gives you a summary of all your meetings. Mm. And, it, you know, with that piece, not, not live yet, but summary of all your meetings and, you know, the important outcomes of each one, just quick summary, high level. We have a dashboard being built where you're going to be able to view things. So instead of running it, you know, right now, no one cares what video conferencing platform they use. You use Zoom or Hangouts or uh, Microsoft Meetings. You don't care. It's just, it's very ephemeral. It's a, it's a fee that closes. With Waitroom, we're taking and extracting the information from your conversations and we're creating actionable pieces of knowledge that you can keep, share, use. You know, for example, if you're having a company discussion and something really interesting comes out of it, you can click on a, a, one of the, uh, one of the sort of snippets and just go and push it into Slack or push it into Asana as a to-do list, allocate it to people, email it to people. So we're trying to create, take the value of all these conversations and just disseminate it throughout you know, your life and your, your company. And think about it, this at a slightly higher level. If you have a 100-person company and there's 500 people in the company, sorry, five, uh, five meetings a day, it's 500 meetings a day, right? Mm -hmm. And over the course of a week, it's you know, 2,500 meetings. Over the course of a month, it's you know, 10,000 meetings. Imagine being able to get a summary of what happened in all these meetings. Imagine the AIs listening to these conversations. Imagine the AI picks up on a conversation you and the sales guy had. And the sales guy says, hey, we're going to, you know, this sales delayed for a week. But the AI knows, hang on, that was a sale was a million dollars. So that's going to impact our cash flow. We better flag this with, with finance because they're expecting revenue to be paid by a certain date. And so we can meet salaries. And then that goes up to the CEO and says, oh, okay, I need to go to the bank and make sure I have a line of credit for this. Imagine this is happening in real time. You can't do that today. You can't coordinate, you know, that many meetings in a month or even a week without some sort of AI. Yeah. How do you feel like AI is going to affect the uh, labor force over the next three to five years? I'd say, let's go even shorter term. I'd say in the next 12 to 18 months, people doing jobs like writing content, replying to emails for customer support, their jobs are in um, without a doubt. I've seen software that's been built and companies selling software to big organizations. Here's an example. If you went to a large organization, let's just pick a telco, you know, which are Verizon, AT&T, whatever. How many millions of email tickets do you think these guys have got archived over the past 10, 15, 20 years? A lot. You run that through an AI model, and I guarantee you, with 99.9% .9 accuracy, that AI can respond to any new email that comes through and resolve the issue without a single human being involved. And the user won't even know. The Turing test would be passed. You'd think that you're actually emailing a real person and they would solve that problem because they've got so much data to work with. So all these companies with large data sets, they're going to be like, well, why do we have a thousand customer support people asking, answering emails mm -hmm. uh, or even text chatting? The one thing I think will take a little longer is voice. So you, you, know, you right now you can t kind of tell you're speaking to an AI. Within three to five years, it'll be just real time. You'll be speaking to, you think it's a real person, but it's not. So those are the jobs that are going to be the first to go. People writing content, people writing, um, you know, it, it's, 
it's not low-level jobs. It's just jobs that can be automated by, by machines and machine learning and large language models. So, you know, what I tell people is like, do what, work on things and try to be, try to do things that you think machines cannot do. Okay. Mm-hmm. So art, art's a great one. I mean, machines are doing art right now, but you know, machines are creative. It's interesting, but you still need people to do that. They still write the prompts. So it's the arts, music, creativity. It's yes, AI can do that, but that's not, you know, they don't capture the essence of humans doing it. Right. When an artist puts out a song that's full of emotion about, you know, a breakup, whatever, humans, machines don't feel those emotions. So I think that the, the conversion of emotions, which is a fundamental human thing, which I don't think machines will have ever, into works of art, expression, that's very powerful. And Steve Jobs said this as well. I mean, he was, he really, he really thought technology, you know, and, 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 the, and the liberal arts, the intersection of that is Apple, right? Mm-hmm. And Apple tries to enable that a lot. I still think that humans will reinvent ourselves in areas where machines can't proliferate, okay? We did that when, when vehicles were made as well. We, 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 you know, we got rid of horses. We don't see any horses on the road anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's gone, but everyone's employed and gainfully. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the labor force kind of maneuvers through this next you know, few years. Um, another one is like you know, all these uh, self-driving cars, right? Yep. Like Uber is such a big uh, means for people to make money these days all, yeah. all across the entire world, not just here in the States. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what these self-driving cars, once they get fully up and running, what is that going to do to the labor force? Yeah. I think we're a bit far, far further away from people being comfortable being in a car that's self-driving than they are, at least not in on highways and stuff. Maybe you know local urban stuff. They're already jumping in airplanes that have autopilot. What's the difference? Really? Like, to me, yeah. Well, no, but a lot they, of these, but these airliners, no, no, but there's pilots in the cockpit. True, but a lot of these airliners are are auto land, and they're literally sure. almost the entire flight but is on autopilot. Most people don't know that, mm. and as far as they're concerned, there's two pilots in the cockpit True. watching it. So. It's the same as me. Like I'll I'll drive my Tesla with autopilot on, and uh, but I'm watching the road because it makes mistakes sometimes, right? So it's, it does. Uh, it's, yeah. It's, it's uh, I, I, you know a little bit nervous, but I'll I'll use it. And I'm you know I'm pretty like tech affluent and whatnot, mm-hmm. but I, I still take a little bit of caution on that stuff. Again, we'll get there. We're just not getting there in two or three years. Yeah. The, the low hanging fruit right now is large language models, machine learning, all that stuff impacting not, things where physical harm isn't a risk. Yeah. Where do you see all these folks that get replaced from AI? Where do you see them kind of pivoting to and, and what opportunities might present themselves? You know, humans are interesting because when given more time, we're able to be a lot more creative and think more deeply about our lives if we're in the right mental state, right? So the, I guess the hope is that people who do get laid off and do have to look for jobs start thinking to themselves about, you know, and this is what I would say to anyone listening who is laid off or who's going to get through this, is Think deeply about what makes you really happy in life and what you're really passionate about. And, you know, it's often not one thing. So if you say, oh, it was my job. Well, it's probably not just your job. There are probably other things. And if you want to elevate yourself, go and focus on things which maybe you didn't have enough time for, you didn't, or you didn't like, you know, uh, think about uh, previously because you were so busy in your job. And I've seen many, many people when they lose their jobs over, over my career, they reinvent themselves. and They do it really, really well. But you gotta take that, you gotta take the breath in. You gotta say, who am I really and what do I wanna do? And what are my strengths and what are my weaknesses and what are my passions? And you know, I, I think it's often an opportunity for people to just take stock of their lives. Now I get that, you know, and I've been there. You can be broke, you can be like, what do I do? How am I gonna pay mm-hmm. for my next meal? How am I gonna pay the mortgage? And it's just really, really difficult to to think when you're in that mindset. But you know, I think uh, 
The good news is when you get laid off in a company, you normally have a package of some sort. You normally have a couple of weeks or months and you have to go find a new job. So you do have a little bit of time. Use that time wisely. Start looking for jobs. Start putting yourself out there. And honestly, I think people should also embrace AI. So if you do lose your job, go to YouTube. Go and watch the videos of how people are using AI to make money. There are thousands of these videos out there. Thousands. Go and use ChatGPT. Go and try and mimic some of these, these techniques and, and styles that people are using. Go be part of that industry because if it's going to affect your job, you might as well be part of it, right? You might as well say, and you can teach yourself the stuff. It's not hard. The, the, we are very fortunate today. The amount of content that's available for self-learning and knowledge, that college education inflation is a waste of time. Like you're paying that much for a college degree, which you can go learn in Khan Academy. This is, you know, like the people, the reason yeah, people- Yeah, you can learn more on YouTube or, or listening to podcasts like this. Absolutely. The, so the reason that people go to universities, it, it's a brand. You want this like, I got a stem from Stanford that I'm smart and I'm, you don't need that. I'm, I'm a university dropout and I'm like, you know, I've done pretty well. Yeah. If you were to get laid off right now and you had to start one new business making money through AI, what would that be? I, I don't know exactly. Um, I do think that there's an opportunity to help companies adopt AI. So if you're in a certain sector and you know the sector well, try and think about ways that you could use ChatGPT, OpenAI to, to provide products and services to your, your previous employer or other companies in the sector. So apply your knowledge of what your work is and say how and ask yourself, how could AI disrupt this market or improve this market? And how could I build a company to sell these services? Because like even things like being a prompt engineer, they're offering like $350,000 a year for that. So someone understands how to write prompts inside ChatGPT. That's very powerful. Again, because we're at the early stages of a whole new industry, the, the knowledge base is, I wouldn't say knowledge base, but the, the surface area of what you have to learn is not as big as it's going to be in three years' time. So if you get in now, you're going to learn a lot and you're going to be positioning yourself for the next wave. Now, that's if you're still passionate about technology and want to be in the space. If not, there are other things you could be doing. But I think ChatGPT in particular um, and Google's up Bard, these things are going to fundamentally change the way we work, the way we do things, the way we book travel, the way we, in number of things. Yeah. Yeah, I love that, man. I, I think whenever there's any sort of setback, I think, you know, obviously there's going to be disruption with AI, um, but sometimes you need to take a step back in order to take two steps forward. So I think with that will come opportunity for a lot of folks out there. My man, it's been a pleasure uh, been chatting. Great. I'm definitely looking forward to staying connected. I'm a big fan of everything you're doing and um, looking forward to it, my man. Thanks, Rich. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you in the next one. Peace. Peace.